Hello everyone and welcome back to the Relay Bitcoin podcast. Today we have an amazing guest, Alice Kaleen from Stillmark Ventures. I think the first time we have an actual like Bitcoin focused venture capitalist here, your and your team's work day to day is look at the most interesting uh, Bitcoin startups worldwide and invest in some of them. Would you, would you mind quickly uh, telling about yourself a little bit, introduce yourself a little bit to people that might not know you yet? Um, there might be a few. And also what you did like in your previous life before Bitcoin. Of course. So. As you described it, I have the best job in the world, which is being able to talk to hundreds of founders a year, really, about how they see Bitcoin's ability to progress culture, to progress finance, or to sort of advance the vertical that they'd already been building in. So a bit about my background and about the formation of Stillmark. So Stillmark is a venture capital fund focused exclusively on companies building um, on Bitcoin or building to financialize Bitcoin or that use Bitcoin's technologies to create a better experience for their users, whether that be enterprise or retail consumers. Um, so Mark launched in 2019, I believe is the first Bitcoin focused venture capital fund in the world. And that was emergent from about six or seven years of prior work in the field. So I started in venture capital in 2012, really focused on infrastructure technologies and frontier tech within that designation. And so what that looked like then in 2012, 2013, 2014 was cloud networking, um, new forms of data center software, cybersecurity, the first applications of data science. And, and, and that was even before we were sort of referring to data sciences, machine learning, or artificial intelligence capabilities. So we were really early in these cutting edge texts, which today seem much more commonplace. Fast forward to today, I feel that it's ex almost exactly the same experience, except with potentially an even broader impact. And that's what we're doing at Stillmark. So we're looking at Bitcoin in two ways, both as BTC, the asset, but also as Bitcoin, this set of open source protocols. And what I mean by that is Bitcoin Core, of course, and Lightning Network, and then other second or third layer technologies that will be built on top of Bitcoin Core native to Bitcoin. Um, and so the idea is that with this very secure, stable, dependable infrastructure, that the global economy can be unlocked in an entirely new way, because instead of just a select um, you know, set of people being able to participate, as is true in the traditional financial system or when traditional financial institutions gate access, in Bitcoin, everyone can participate. And, and they can participate in an entirely new way. And so Stillmark is here to do two things, to take advantage of that, of course. We think there's an opportunity to do really well while also doing good work. And then second is to find founders, the top tier founders that we have an opportunity to help advance in some way, um, either through our network, through our prior experience, through resources to help them accelerate their their cadence of growth. And so that's a bit about what we do. I, I feel really grateful to be in this seat for sure and working with such incredible people.
that, that it must be amazing. So like, but how was this transition and why did you decide to make this tr uh, transition from a more traditional and pretty broad tech VC that you worked on? Like you, you, you looked at so many different fields um, to a very narrow, specific, uh, focused uh, VC and funding it, your, founding it yourself and you had to, to fundraise and do this, the, the, all these things that belong to uh, you know, starting a VC. So what, what made you do this, uh, this transition? What amazed you so much about Bitcoin? So it really felt like a natural transition that I expect everyone will make. So although today Stillmark is called a Bitcoin venture capital firm, I think that in 10 years from now, Bitcoin technologies will be so ubiquitous that to call um, Stillmark a Bitcoin VC firm then will be like today calling other VC firms internet VC funds. Wow. Yeah. It, it just is, you know, all VC funds really invest in internet companies. I think the same will be true for Bitcoin in 10 years. And so I wanted to be early and first. And also I just saw an obvious gap in the market. And so it, it made sense I think for me to form Stillmark to, to bridge that gap. And what I mean by that specifically is that while there was angel capital for founders building in the space, there wasn't sort of this professional venture capital for founders to take advantage of and, um, and to sort of rely on to build their companies. And there, of course, there still is um, a dearth of capital in the space. It's it's much different from crypto, right? Where we see these multiple multi-billion dollar funds that need to race to sort of deploy dollars in a competitive space because there's more dollars than there is strong companies. In Bitcoin, it's the exact opposite. There's many more very talented founders, very compelling companies than there is venture capital dollars. Mm, for sure. but, but several years ago in 2019 or earlier than that, in 2019 when Stillmark launched, there was nothing. And so it, it just felt obvious and natural to launch Stillmark and to take the, the learnings and education I had had in venture capital about how to support and help um, advance and partner with founders and to apply that into the Bitcoin field. And uh, what was true then, same is true today, same is true in 2013 when I first learned about Bitcoin is that the smartest engineers and some of the smartest operators in the world are working in this space. And so it's a complete pleasure to work with this group of people. And because I started in the space in 2013, and what I mean by that is I started to get curious and to spend time at conferences or um, advising companies and really learning from founders and engineers in 2013 um, or, and in the years subsequent to that. Because of that, I was able to build a really strong network that operates as a foundation for Stillmark and is available and supportive of Stillmark portfolio companies. And bringing that all to market to, to you know, ideally help Bitcoin's adoption flourish, it just felt like the natural next step in 2019. The other thing that was unique about 2019, of course, was that we were starting to see the emergence of a really robust um, and scalable Lightning Network. We know that in 2017, of course, that SegWit was activated on Bitcoin Core. And fundamentally, what that did was allow for a more sophisticated lightning network, um, a better integrated lightning network 
to be built on top of Bitcoin Core. We saw Segwit adopted in 2018 and early 2019. And so that created this environment in which it made sense to build a Bitcoin-focused VC fund. Because with Segwit activated and Lightning Network um, and the potential that that unlocked in Lightning Network, we were able to sort of have more um, faith in the hypothesis that Lightning Network would catalyze a, a new economy and that apps would be built on top of Lightning Network that would be, um, you know, foundational and, and, and significant to people's everyday experience the same way Web2 type apps like Venmo um, or PayPal had been in prior cycles. Absolutely. So these, basically these technological upgrades open up the, the fantasy as well of investors that, oh, this can actually be more than just digital gold. It can be this whole infrastructure base layer of all kinds of apps like decentralized finance, all that, a lot of things that are uh, basically proposed and tried out now in, on other blockchains or on Web2 or whatever can actually be built on the, the Bitcoin um, uh, blockchain or the Bitcoin layer. And then, as you say, this can be like an internet a base protocol like the internet of value uh, kind of thing so i can imagine that this attracted uh, more so do you think that there are more and more uh, vcs maybe traditional vcs turning into bitcoin only vcs or at least uh, getting into uh, this field or also um, uh, 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 crypto vcs these all these web3 and DeFi vcs turning into bitcoin only vcs is this a field in itself like this bitcoin only vc Field, is this something that is growing in, in your opinion or are you still just uh, only a few? I think it's growing. So I think, you know, there, the condition of human nature is that people don't like to be wrong. And so I think that it's difficult to sort of unwind your prior statements um, about crypto or your doubtful statements about Bitcoin to sort of spend more time on Bitcoin. But for folks that have taken a more open-minded approach and have sort of not made their core bets yet in this new era, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of attention from those folks for Bitcoin and also for Bitcoin-focused funds. And so, um, you know, there's many ways, of course, to participate now. On the early stage side, pre-seed and seed investing, there's more today Bitcoin-focused funds than there were in say 2019 when Stillmark launched. And it's at the series A and then series B growth period for companies where there's less capital that's dedicated specifically for Bitcoin companies. However, at that stage, you're seeing traditional generalist funds start to pay attention based on a company's KPIs. And so it would be a company at the, at the series B stage is evaluated a Bitcoin company at the Series B stage is evaluated in just the same way mm -hmm. that a general tech company at the Series B stage would be evaluated. And so at that point, there's a shift for most Bitcoin companies that have raised venture capital from working with Bitcoin focused funds into working with general tech VC funds. And one of the jobs that Stillmark has in mind or one of the responsibilities that we take to heart is helping founders prepare for that shift. For instance, how to integrate and manage a board as it adds um, preferred shareholders to the board, including those that 
perhaps don't spend 24 hours a day thinking about Bitcoin and where, you know, their core focus as a participant in your, um, in your company and on your board will be something other than Bitcoin. They're, they'll want to see standard growth, um, you know, an aggressive product roadmap, perhaps. And, you know, for founders preparing to be able to manage that sort of diversified cap table and stakeholder set is important. And so that's part of what we're doing. But I think that working with the right investors, including generalist funds, can really be an accelerant. And so it's, in my experience, been really positive to have portfolio companies, um, you know, start to look outside of the Bitcoin focused field and to bring on um, general VCs. That makes total sense. And this is 100% aligned with our uh, kind of as a fundraising startup, uh, our experience that it, it's always very good to have this mix of Bitcoin only VCs and general uh, VCs. What we have found is that kind of crypto VCs are not inclined to invest in Bitcoin only uh, companies. But, but as you said, if you have good growth metrics and KPIs, then general VCs will jump in at one point, in our case, even at the seed stage, but more, even more so probably in series A and B. And then this, this is a great dynamic, I think, that is happening. So one, wonderful work you, you're doing. So tell us a little bit about like the, the hottest cases or not even cases, but like the hottest fields uh, currently that you're looking at in Bitcoin. What are you most excited about in, in the Bitcoin startup field? That's a great question. So there's a lot of things that we're excited about. So I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk about two. So one is that we know that the release of the Tarot protocol is pending. And so what that is, is it's a protocol um, invented and advanced by Lightning Labs to allow other digital assets to be traded um, effectively on Lightning Network. And um, what that means from a practical standpoint and what we're most excited about is that you can get stable coins traded on Lightning Network. And so for someone in an emerging market, all that means is access to digital USD that they can send peer-to-peer -peer 24 hours a day, seven days a week, instantly and virtually for free without having to prove their worthiness or credit worthiness to an intermediary. And so what I expect to see and what we saw in El Salvador in, in the Bitcoin airdrop that happened in the second half of 2021 is that many of the world's unbanked or underbanked are going to skip traditional financial infrastructure entirely and become banked by Lightning Network. Now, of course, once you have a, a digital USD Lightning wallet on your phone, really what you have is a Bitcoin wallet on your phone. And so there's this interesting Trojan horse opportunity for Bitcoin to be introduced to an unbanked or underbanked population through digital dollars so that people become familiar with and can trust Bitcoin's infrastructure. And then maybe as we go forward from that, they become curious about the native asset to Bitcoin, which is BTC. And as they have the capability to save, they can start stacking stats. But in the meantime, the tech is still available to them through Terra. Um, and the reason why the tech is still available to them is because Terra allows people, regardless of their wealth or means, to make use of Bitcoin's technology by removing BTC's volatility. Mm -hmm. So before Tarot, in order to access Lightning Network or Bitcoin 
core protocol technologies to make payments, you had to be able to tolerate BTC's volatility mm -hmm. during your holding period. And that's something that you or I can do and our friends can do and you know the folks around us, but it's very difficult. It's very different and difficult for someone in an emerging market that makes say $400 a month and their family's expenses range between 380 and $420 a month. It's really difficult to be able to tolerate Bitcoin's volatility over the weeks that you hold it until you're you know, at the pharmacy buying a prescription for um, your son that has a fever, say. Mm. And so what Tarot does really, it's a, it's a response to that, that sort of observation that, that people in emerging markets, and let's use El Salvador as an example, when they get access to Lightning Network and to Bitcoin, they're really instantly excited about what Lightning Network can do to transmit payments. And then they're, they're hesitant about their ability to use BTC because of its volatility. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, many people are not sure that they can tolerate that risk. And so Tarot is a response to that. We're really excited to see what can be built with Tarot. And, and I mean that both from the infrastructure side and from the app side. And so in terms of infrastructure, of course, companies like Amboss become really important, an index of the Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. Which nodes do what and how, can you, and how can you participate with your peers in order to execute an effective transaction? Um, or companies like Voltage that allow people to more easily plug in and spin up nodes to join and to manage a business that takes advantage of Lightning Network. But then there's a whole app layer that allows populations to adopt Lightning Network or digital dollars through Lightning Network. And we're really seeing that flourish. And to give you an example of that, one of the companies in our portfolio is Ibex Mercado, which was the leading merchant POS infrastructure in El Salvador when El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as legal tender and did the $30 airdrop in September of 2021. Um, the other trend that we're really excited about is this sort of transition to sustainable energy sources for Bitcoin mining. And here's, here's the sort of um, really compelling piece of this is that miners are competing for lowest access to lowest cost of energy. And that energy is generally not attractive to others for various reasons. So it's either stranded, it's geographically hard to access, it's intermittent, like wind or solar. And so it's lower price energy. And Bitcoin miners can take advantage of that. And so we're, we're really, I've been really excited and sort of inspired to see the creativity that has emerged from um, energy experts about how they can mine and take advantage of these unused energy assets in order to, to make BTC. And so that's something that we're also looking at. To give an example of how creative people are getting, I'll mention a, a company outside of our portfolio, Vespine Energy, which is actually finding ways to mine Bitcoin, to make Bitcoin from methane offput from landfills. And so by this sort of activity, what I expect to see over the long run is not just you know, multiple multi-billion dollar businesses be built, but also I think there's a path to Bitcoin becoming carbon negative. 
Mm. And so it's, and the, some of the smartest minds in the world are on this opportunity right now. And so I'm excited about that as well. Yeah, me too. I mean, if, if you look at it in, in a bit more detail, it's a no brainer really, right? You can, you can out of surplus energy, you can make money, right? You can just produce money in a very easy way. You can transform energy that you don't need or you can't use for some reasons, you can turn it into uh, actual like money. Um, and so that, that's, I mean, it's, it's such a no-brainer. And at the same time, you can make uh, things so much more sustainable. You don't waste energy anymore. You, you can use energy that is there anyway to, 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 to make something uh, that, that is, uh, ha has a monetizable value, can be transferred and can you know, a value story. So th this, this is amazing. So exactly. if I understand you correctly, Obviously, I mean, this is a rhetoric question. You believe that mining and proof of work will, uh, will keep on existing and there will be this industry that, that is growing. So maybe can you quickly elaborate in, in simple terms for people why you think uh, proof of work is important and uh, like specifically right now with the merge coming up with so the second biggest um, uh, cryptocurrency Ethereum is now transitioning from a proof of work to a proof of stake um, so where there's no mining anymore um, and and they say you know we make it 99% less energy or more energy efficient it will use 99% less energy than now so it's obviously a, a, a good hook for for many people lay, uh, laymen um, uh, and the merge, like this transition, is coming up in a couple of weeks from when we record. Probably it's going to be over when we release the, the episode. But so specifically in that, uh, what, how do you see uh, this evolving? And then more broadly, the whole Bitcoin versus crypto um, uh, theme. So where Bitcoin is one and obviously the leading uh, of these plus 20,000 different cryptocurrencies. Is there a difference between Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? And what is this difference for you? In Ethereum switching from proof of work to proof of stake, they completely relinquish the opportunity to ever become a carbon negative protocol. And if we, you know, it, so there's mixed sentiment in the Bitcoin community around climate science. But if we are to sort of go with the trend and believe that we're in a climate emergency, then in the switch, Ethereum sort of throws up their hands and says, we give up on contributing to this issue. Bitcoin, on the other hand, has been steadily marching to becoming carbon neutral and ultimately carbon negative, like I mentioned just a couple minutes ago. So I suppose it's a bit disappointing to see Ethereum give up on contributing in that way, because of course, what proof of work mining does is it creates this capitalistic incentive towards green energy and towards using waste to, to make Bitcoin. So instead of trusting people's own goodwill and trying to get folks like Vladimir Putin to decide to be a good guy, instead of doing that, what proof of work does is it says, we'll pay you to do the right thing here and I think it's really lovely, ambitious, and um, you know, sophisticated for Bitcoin to be, you know, really focused on doing a few things, which is bringing finance in a democratized way to the masses, and addressing this climate problem that you know we hear about um, in in traditional media frequently. 
So separate from that, I want to acknowledge that the existing system before Bitcoin was already proof of stake, effectively. We didn't call it proof of stake, but the people setting the rules and um, defining monetary and fiscal policy are the people with access to more resources. And this is exactly the same thing that happens in proof of stake. So what Satoshi did when he introduced proof of work was that he proposed that by aligning incentives of disparate stakeholders of, of varying resources, aligning that through proof of work, that we can move from a proof of stake system into an open system in which the rules are consistent and apply equally to all participants. Whether you're providing security through mining, whether you're sending a transaction, whether you're sending $2 on Lightning Network, and that will ultimately need to be confirmed back to Bitcoin Core at some point or not, the rules are the same. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You don't need to have, for example, 32 Bitcoin mm -hmm. to participate equally in this transaction ledger, this open transaction ledger, but that's not the same with Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And you know, for this and for many, many, many reasons, I actually consider Bitcoin and altcoins to be categorically different. They're trying to do different things and the ambitions are very different. And I think this point is underemphasized. So Ethereum's ambition has really seemed to be to replace Bitcoin. Bitcoin's ambition is to provide an alternative for the current financial system, for current settlement rails, for banking, for the definition of what wealth is, and to provide access to save even if banks don't think you're worthy of that. That's Bitcoin's ambition. Mm -hmm. That's much bigger than number go up <laughs> or than anything you know Ethereum or other altcoin spaces are thinking about. So Ethereum is thinking about Bitcoin. The other altcoins are thinking about Ethereum. <laughs> and so I think really what Ethereum should be worried about is are the protocols that are, are aiming to replace Ethereum. And there's a really, I think, interesting dynamic here, like social dynamic, which is that while people in the Ethereum community have really been prompted and encouraged to value decentralization, it doesn't seem like that's as true in all, in in you know, smaller, longer tail protocols. And actually decentralization is very frictionful. So unless you're getting a massive value from decentralization, it, it, it weighs you down. And so the value that Bitcoin gets from decentralization is that Bitcoin can bank everyone. It just, it doesn't just bank privileged people, but it, it's also, I, I say, and the reason why I came into the space is that it's FinTech for poor people. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin is fintech for all of us, for, you know, the seven or eight billion people on this planet. And, you know, it, it just, it makes it categorically different. So this is Bitcoin's aspiration. And then in the meantime, I think you have, you know, folks that want to be lean and mean and centralized, wanting to process more transactions a second, for instance, than Ethereum does wanting to be a better platform for people to build and launch tokens um, and other gambling sort of activity. And, you know, I, I think in the long run, what, we, what will be really interesting is to see if Ethereum can hang on to its sort of 
number two spot or whether that slips to a protocol like Solana that is optimizing um, you know, for efficiency, I think even more than Ethereum is. I totally, like from an idealistic point of view anyway, I totally agree with that uh, statement. On the other side, if you look at kind of just the pure numbers, and you, you mentioned this before, the money that flows into both of these fields, Bitcoin and uh, let's say all the rest, like e Ethereum, other smart contracts, protocol, like all of these altcoins, 20,000 plus altcoins, uh, on the retail level, as well as on the VC level, you just see so much speculative money, like billions and billions. Like Andreas Horowitz, I think they, they raised like what their, their first fund was 1 billion, their second fund was 4.5 billion dedicated to crypto only. Not Bitcoin, but just crypto and Web3 and DeFi and all that kind of stuff. So, so much money is flowing into there from retail and from, these, uh, from, from institutional investors. And considerably less, I would, I would assume, from, uh, at, least from uh, at least now from retail and VCs to, to Bitcoin only kind of causes. Just because I, I feel like that's just mainly because um, people like to speculate and, and they want to, you know, numbers, number go up, uh, get rich quick uh, schemes and stuff like that, because this is all happening in, in crypto. So, and, and usually where the money flows, there will be some progress, there will be a lot of activity, right? So how do you see this play out in the next like five to 10 years? Do you see many of these or, or the majority of these other cryptos go to zero and be relevant and kind of Bitcoin rising to the top as this dominant protocol and be like this internet of uh, value where, where no other protocols are even relevant? Or, or kind of how do you, did you see this, uh, these two fields coexist? Okay, so there's a few different important points and questions that you're making there. So I want to make sure to distinguish between each of them. Um, with In terms of your last point, for what Bitcoin is doing, no other protocols are relevant. That's true as of today. Um, so for Bitcoin to provide effectively a replacement banking system for everyone in the world that they can opt into and also opt out of, there's no, there's no other protocols relevant for that value proposition. And of course, that value proposition has the largest TAM by orders of magnitude in comparison to what other protocols target. Now, you talked about both retail participation and venture capital participation. So first, in terms of retail participation, Bitcoin's adoption is, again, orders of magnitude larger than Ethereum's adoption or any other protocol. Um, in terms of transactions, if we're counting everything and dollars, if we're counting everything once instead of 20 or 30 times, as happens in DeFi, then Bitcoin also has an order of magnitude more transactions than any other protocol it would be compared to. So switching from that over to venture capital, so switching from the retail question um, over to venture capital, What's happening in venture capital where there's tokens is very different from traditional venture capital. And in fact, when you're investing in a company and expecting that your return on investment happened through the appreciation of tokens, that, in fact, I would not consider a venture capital activity. That looks more like a hedge fund or, or maybe a new category altogether, but that's not venture capital. And here's why. What venture capital does is it, in, it invests in a company through the purchase of equity 
And venture capitalists produce a return on that investment when the company's equity value increases. And equity value increases when revenue has grown, when product is developed, when the use cases of that product are so robust that loyal usage of, of the product has emerged and we can predict a sustainable pattern of growth and of engagement from that product's user base. Now, and, and so that's what increases equity value. And then when you exit your position to sell your equity, there's three you know, primary ways that you can do that. And they all involve the sale of equity to sophisticated investors. And so, you know, the primary ways that VCs exit their position is that a company can have an IPO where you sell the company, um, where the company sells shares into the public market to create liquidity. A company can be acquired by another company. And the third way is that some VCs will participate in the secondary market before a company has an exit in order to sell their shares to another qualified purchaser, like another venture capital fund. And so this, this effectively is the practice of participating in a company, observing it grow in a sustainable way, and then selling your equity to a sophisticated investor that believes the company will continue to grow. Of course, in the token world, it's completely the opposite. So a token can appreciate even without the company having a product, without the company even proposing a, a business model, let alone a sustainable business model. Um, and the exit doesn't have to happen to and, and generally doesn't happen to sophisticated investors. Instead, you can purchase tokens um, for you know, a, a vaporware system, so for software that never launches. But once those tokens become liquid, you can sell them to someone's grandma or to you know a 14-year-old boy on his father's work computer that's you know on some exchange, and you don't need to sell to a sophisticated investor group. And so this is a completely different activity. I don't I don't think it has much to do with venture capital. And there's been a lot of confusion here in that people have been you know really perturbed to see funds back founders that have had prior failures in the traditional tech world. But I think what's missing is the acknowledgement that when, uh, when, when an investor backs a company that has a token, that doesn't necessarily mean that that investor expects that founder to succeed in any meaningful way in terms of developing software or product. What it means is that the investor expects that founder to be able to promote the appreciation of the token mm. to an audience that may not be sophisticated or maybe doesn't care if there's a product or business model. So the token trades on community sentiment or excitement. Mm -hmm. And so what the founder needs to do to generate that community sentiment or excitement is very different than, than a founder needing to build a business, a product and user engagement in order to accrue um, enterprise value in order to build the equity value of their company. Absolutely. I feel like I just learned so much about not only Bitcoin and crypto, but also especially venture capital. That's amazing. Thank you for these insights. So la last kind of bigger question would be, 
as we are in Europe, you know, we're one of these uh, Bitcoin only apps in Europe, you know, 40 countries and stuff, we're one of the bigger Bitcoin only uh, places where you can buy and sell Bitcoin and also stack sats here. And obviously there are many such, uh, such uh, startups in the US. I feel like also the Bitcoin industry in, in, in general is a bit more like as the startup and venture capital scene anyway in, in, in the US is, is everything is kind of bigger and faster. And that's at least my perspective. I've only been to the US once, but I, I feel like this, this, this is my perspective. So there's, there's kind of more going on in startup, venture, Bitcoin, crypto, all that kind of stuff. And here in, in, in Europe is maybe, maybe a bit different. So I don't know, are you traveling a lot? Like, do you have some uh, insights in, in the, the European market? How do you compare these two, like the US and Europe uh, from a, a startup venture capital, but also especially from a Bitcoin uh, perspective? I think the, well, so first of all, it's probably a better question for me to ask you. <laughs> um, but I'll say that from my perspective, the primary difference between U.S. and European-based Bitcoin companies is just the way that regulation impacts the company's ability to scale their addressable market. Their, um, and so what I mean by that is where can you sell your product and how does regulation you know, impact that? And so you know, because Europe is comprised of multiple um, countries with perhaps varying regulation, there can be some complexities to this. But of course, the opportunity, as you likely well know, is that in, in sort of, um, you know, forming a strategic hypothesis about how to best operate in an environment with varying regulation, enacting that allows you to create a moat so that it's you know more difficult to compete with you once you've figured out how to be both relevant um, and compliant in multiple countries in the EU. Um, you know you sort of you create this barrier to entry for others that will have to figure out the same. And so while you know th that's the primary difference I see between EU-based companies and U.S.-based companies. But of course, when we talk about Bitcoin, we're talking about a global technology. And so I don't know that geography matters as much as it might for another type of company, like a food delivery company, right? We're talking about a technology that knows no borders and that allows us to transact, you know, peer to peer as, you know, from say Chicago to Ghana, as though we were standing next to each other, right? And so, you know, I, I think that we have the great opportunity to be less concerned with geography in the Bitcoin and Lightning space than we would need to be in a general tech space. And so our TAM and the population um, for which our work is relevant is just much, much broader. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and more into the, the startup and VC space, what we uh, observe is that, um, or, or what we read as well, if we do research and stuff is that in the US, there's there's a tendency of more venture capital. So there are bigger rounds, higher valuation, and more crazy investments like uh, like pre-seed or seed in, in investments in the tens of millions pre-product without revenue and stuff like this is something, these are things that are not happening in Europe. Yet sometimes it, it like works <laughs> uh, for, for these uh, VCs because these then sometimes become the huge 
companies. Um, and in also in Europe, it tends everything tends to be kind of smaller. Investor thinks think smaller. They, they their capital is a bit less uh, loosely available. Um, but at the same time, also the um, uh, ratio between valuation and revenue or profitability is 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 usually better, more attractive for for VCs. So that that leads to also a lot of U.S. capital flowing into uh, into Europe. Uh, especially also in, in Bitcoin and crypto, which is kind of kind of an interesting kind of arbitrage um, uh, opportunity, right? For for especially for U.S. Uh, investors to come come to Europe. How do you see this? Maybe also from a fund perspective, like do you do you invest globally? Are you are you focused on uh, U.S. and Latin um, companies at all? Or so Stillmark has a global mandate. And we can invest in founders in any geography and, and we do, and we hope to continue that and focused on any population regardless of their location. And, you know, so just what I'm seeing actually is sort of a normalization of valuation um, regardless of geography. So I, I actually don't see a significant difference between company valuations in the EU and in the US. Nor do I really see a significant difference in valuation for the top tier companies in LATAM or um, in the continent of Africa or in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, really, I think the top tier of, of companies and investment opportunities, those tend to be priced very consistently, regardless of geography. But of course, as you pointed out indirectly a couple of times before, Bitcoin valuations tend to be very reasonable, especially at the early stage, justified by metrics or by market position. So a company's market share of the category that they're participating in. Um, and I think, you know, that's to the that can be to the advantage of founders because it, it allows, um, you know, if rounds are not getting hot or overpriced then it creates a, an, easier, an, an easier dynamic for founders to raise subsequent rounds. And we're seeing the benefit and the value of that today, given the, the macro decline or challenging macro environment, the Bitcoin bear market, Bitcoin founders or in crypto bear market, Bitcoin founders are in a much better position than crypto founders when crypto founders had raised massive rounds for products and software that hadn't launched yet at, at sky high valuations. What Bitcoin founders have been doing in the meantime is raising conservative rounds for 24 to 36 months of runway where the post money valuation was justified by their metrics or by their market position. And so now when founders go back out to market to raise the subsequent round to get them through this challenging macro environment, crypto founders are having a much harder time and Bitcoin founders are finding themselves in the position to be able to raise almost just as they would had the downturn not happened. And then the other thing I want to point out is that the resiliency created in Bitcoin founders, knowing that they may have to depend on themselves versus fast and loose venture dollars, it really advantages a company's operations. And there's two primary things that are happening, both which advantage not just the common shareholders of so the company team members, but also the preferred shareholders. And, and these are those two things. First is that Bitcoin founders are thinking about getting to break even and, and really to becoming profitable and producing 
revenue from the products that they launch in a much more serious way than you see in the crypto space. You almost don't see this in the crypto space, but Bitcoin founders are head da heads down, completely focused on profitability, which allows cash flows in a way for them to build their businesses, businesses in a non-dilutive way. The second thing, of course, is that Bitcoin founders are thinking about diversifying their treasury to add BTC to the treasury at a strategic time so that when Bitcoin goes up, they add to the months of runway that they have, and they're essentially self-funding their company through treasury management and extending their runway and, and uh, taking the fate of their company into their own hands and out of the hands of venture capitalists. And I think that it's, you know, it's been really lovely to see how much grit Bitcoin founders have and how, um, you know, sort of like determined and responsible Bitcoin founders are compared to, you know, really any other sort of category that, um, you know, that we could that we could compare them to. Yeah, absolutely. I can 100% second that from kind of my network and my observations and also from, from myself or ourselves. So I, I really hope that like many, many Bitcoin founders or founders in general listen to that because these were really like uh, amazing, unique insights. Thank you very, very much for being here. Last question as always, uh, delicate one. <laughs> you don't need to answer, but I would, it would be great if you could answer. Like what is from, from your total um, wealth, basically, what percentage do you hold in Bitcoin? Um, well, I mean, okay, so I shouldn't answer. That would be a question that required, you know, family consensus on providing the answer. <laughs> but maybe I'll answer it in a slightly different way that's relevant to you too. When we're working in Bitcoin, it means that 100% of our portfolio of time is dedicated to Bitcoin. So that's true for you. You have a portfolio of one, <laughs> effectively, which is Bitcoin. The same is true for me. So I've decided to spend 100% of my time heads down and focused on Bitcoin. And not just Bitcoin, but focused on the people that, on supporting the people that can most effectively catalyze Bitcoin's adoption and expand its breadth of use cases. And so, you know, while I don't want to disclose personal family information, because of course, Bitcoin is family wealth and hopefully intergenerational money and resources. But I can say that personally, my portfolio of time outside of family time is 100% spent in Bitcoin. And this is something we can all observe. I mean, everyone who follows you on Twitter or listens to your uh, interviews, I mean, you're a very, very uh, uh, like sophisticated and active spokesperson for the Bitcoin community as well. So uh, if you don't follow Alice Colleen on, uh, uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn and wherever yet, then you should definitely do this. Um, is there anything else you want to, the, the Relay community uh, to, to know or any, any shout out or where can they find more about you and maybe also founders in the Bitcoin space, how should they get in touch? So our website is just stillmark.com and we have a button for founders to click to access our email and to reach out. So we invest anywhere from first check-in um, and the fund is focused on pre-seed seed and some series A, like I said earlier, but we can do everything from first check-in to last um, pre-IPO pre check through an SPV model that we apply. So 
Um, if you'd like to chat, please reach out um, via our website and we'd be happy to do that. It's always a pleasure um, and we approach all of those conversations with a lot of gratitude. Frankly, it's a pleasure to be learning from Bitcoin founders. This conversation was a huge pleasure as well. Thank you very much, Alice, uh, to come on and I wish you a great rest of your day. Talk to you soon. Cheers. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you.